So my name is Sylvia. And what we'll do today is, um, what I'd like to do today, what I hope we'll do today, <clears throat> is a day of uh, practice together that will include um, sitting together and practicing mindfulness together and learning together about uh, uh, relationships through our direct experience as we sit together with our partners in relationships since everybody's brought their partner. Um, and I have some thoughts about the day. Logistically, what I thought is that for the first several hours of today, I'd like for us mostly to think of this as a retreat to which you've brought your intimate partner. And uh, we'll do a fair amount of sitting Maybe some walking if we can. It's pouring outside, so we'll decide about how we want to structure that. But mostly sitting, mostly thinking this as a retreat uh, for a few reasons that I'll really make more explicit in a moment. And uh, I'll teach throughout this morning uh, something theoretical about how I think Dharma understanding interpolates with uh, living in relationships. And then as the day continues, more and more uh, we'll begin to talk amongst ourselves as a large group, perhaps in the form of questions and answers. And also to have some periods where each of you in the couple relationship that you've come with can work with each other and talk about things. So what I'm hopeful that we'll do is we'll set up some sorts of understandings about how a commitment to a dharmic perspective enhances the ways that people can communicate with each other and then for you to be able to practice that while you're still here. So uh, that's logistically how I think the day will go. Um, actually, working in relationship is such a, a, a huge... Uh, thing to talk about. Just even as I say that to you, I think maybe we should have signed up for a week uh, at least and moved in with all of our stuff. Actually, one of the things that I was thinking about, and perhaps as people are getting settled, I just mention it as an image. Uh, I've been listening to the news, as you have, uh, about ongoing struggles in the, in the Middle East and uh, the difficulties of bringing all the parties to the negotiating table in good faith. And uh, I said the other day to a group of people, I have a fantasy. This is my fantasy about how the Middle East negotiations would work out well. That all the parties that uh, are meant to negotiate should come a week before the negotiations and move into a retreat center together not the interpreters or the lower-level staff people, the, the main protagonists in the peace process. They should all move into a retreat center together with neighboring zafus and chairs and do a week of a mindfulness retreat together. No talking, just living together, eating together, walking together, and sitting together. The same sorts of things that I know happen to all of us is we practice together in an, in, in an intensive way. We calm down and relax a little bit, begin to really allow ourselves to feel the struggles in our own mind that inevitably come up 
in the most comfortable situations, in a warm, well-functioning retreat center, safe from the elements with good food, in your own room, in your own bed, and no telephones or fax machines or anyone to bother you. And still the mind bothers. It makes up, it tells all the stories that what happens to people in the course of a retreat, quite apart from uh, anything um, uh, otherworldly or extraordinary in terms of not a normal perception, or this world perception, is they have the quite ordinary perception of how difficult it is to live in a life, even in a comfortable circumstance, and how really our own mind is the source of our own troubles and confusions. <laughs> For those of you who may have seen the movie Kundan uh, that's recently out, the story of the uh, current Dalai Lama, uh, the one line that I think, for me, is one of the most significant in the whole movie is a line where he is, as a young child, being trained by his teachers, maybe five or six years old, and he's asked to repeat the Four Noble Truths. And he begins a kind of rote uh, uh, recitation of life is suffering, the cause of suffering is clinging, and they stop him. And they say, wait a minute, there's too much pride in that. And he thinks for a minute, and he says... I am the cause of most of my own suffering because of my own mind. It's a very important shift in, in understanding. It's terrific when you think about a four-year-old getting that or a five-year-old. So here we are at however we are, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. And to begin to see each of us, that we are each of us manufacturing always probably the fundamental cause of most of our own suffering. Not all of our own pain, because lots of things happen to us, but the cause of our own suffering. So my, my theory is, back to the Middle East, that if we got everybody together and everybody would just sit and come to the same conclusion that practitioners all over the place come to, that each of us, through the grid of the mind through which we process material, is really the source of our own suffering, we would then be able to listen to people with a clearer understanding of what they're saying and how we're processing it and how to hear it clearly attributing to each party what's, what's theirs. This is what this person said. This is what I feel about it. Not, not you and me, but us together. So my, my, my uh, fantasy about resolution of Middle East difficulty or any other kind of difficulty um, and of domestic difficulty here or any place else is that if we are in a clear mind, we can begin to see what's the truth of the situation and operate out of the kindness and compassion that's our natural place when we're not confused and we're not frightened. So towards that end, I thought philosophically, theoretically, it makes sense for us to sit most of the morning quietly before we begin to talk to our partner about any issues or thoughts that we might want to bring up with them. also thought how, what an interesting paradox it is that here we are come to talk about relationships and working in relationships in a Dharma perspective, really out of the perspective of Theravada Buddhism, which is not a relational path when you think about it. Uh, the Buddha was a monastic and a renunciate. 
And he urged people, in fact, in order to have uh, a context in which to practice with the clarity that he thought was required for clear seeing, really urged them to leave their families. He left his family. He got up in the middle of the night and left his wife and his child. We live in a culture where we don't think well of people who get up, fathers who get up in the middle of the night and leave their wife and their child under cover of darkness and stay away for many years. Now, of course, in the end, his wife and his child enter the order and become fully enlightened, but nevertheless, it's a different social context. But here we are using as a uh, the source of our study of each of our own minds and consciousness and how we relate in relationship. The Buddha, who was a monastic and a family renunciate, and we'll use tools from the that particular tradition. What I'd like to use uh, throughout the day as tools to work on relationship is the um, outline of the Eightfold Path as a way of looking at relationship. And so we'll do that throughout the day. I'd like to talk about right understanding, right aspiration, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness through the grid of working in relationship. Sometimes I think maybe for Westerners, we're going to have to make a ninefold path. And the ninth will be right relationship. But uh, I'm not sure whether we can't just do relationship through all of the prisms of those other eight and stop at eight. So I'd like to use that as one uh, framework to (coughs) couch what we talk about. I'd like to use the the, uh, Buddhist map of the difficulties of the mind, the hindrances of um, desire and lust and aversion and torpor and uh, restlessness and doubt as ways of thinking of some of the difficulties that come up inevitably in everyone's mind and cloud their ability to think and perceive clearly and get in the way of uh, living harmoniously in relationship. And I'd like particularly to use a... uh, Uh, part of the Vinaya, uh, especially monks' rules uh, about how to admonish another person when you need to admonish them in a way that uh, makes you a point without demolishing them. And uh, I'd like to talk about uh, forgiveness for oneself and for one's partner. (coughs) through the grid of the Buddhist understanding of the capacity of the heart to forgive when it isn't frightened. Um, So I'd like to talk about metta. So I think we can do this whole day um, as uh, practitioners of uh, Buddha Dharma and talk about our relationships. That's at least my hope for today. So what I'd like to do is to uh, sit a little bit and then perhaps do the rest of the morning in pieces of um, short sittings, either short walkings or short standings, 
a little bit more teaching, uh, a little bit more sitting. Uh, one of the reasons for uh, teachings, Dharma talks, uh, traditionally, uh, is that the, the term used is that what one hears, especially in the context of uh, the balance of uh, a quiet mind, is information that inclines the mind. That's the phrase that I want to use. Inclines the mind in the direction of seeing clearly. So I'll teach a little bit, but I want to teach interspersed with enough spaces of silence so that there's a context to speak into. So if that's all right with you, is that all right with you? That's what we'll do. I also am very much committed to the notion of... uh, intention as being uh, really central, crucial in every kind of practice, in relationship practice, in... uh, Maybe we'll have a tenfold path. We'll add um, right relationship somewhere, but right intention before everything else. It's a little bit of right aspiration, but right intention even to start with. So... We'll sit for a little bit. Uh, Even before I give uh, instructions for how you might sit, in this first minute or two of silence, before the instruction, I hope that you'll think to yourself about what your intention and hope for today is, what you'd like, particularly from this day of practice, in the context of all your life, but for today to set an intention for yourself and for your relationship with the person with whom you've come. And with intention practice, as my teachers taught it to me, one makes the intention with as much wholeheartedness as one can and then lets it go. Really understanding that 
what will happen is what will happen and having made the intention and made it manifest and conscious in the mind we can let it go and then just do what we need to do so sit in a way that's comfortable for you in which you can maintain a certain level of uh, um, alertness in the body so I'd like to invite you to sit either on the chair or on the floor with your back fairly straight. Don't need to be rigid about the way that you sit, but it's really helpful to sit up straight with your shoulders back and your head up. Keeping a certain amount of alertness in the body Uh, maintains a certain level of alertness in the mind. Also, if you sit up, it really allows the breath to come in and out of your body in as graceful and natural and easy a way as it can. You can put your hands wherever you like it, and you can hold hands with yourself or... Some people keep their hands on their knees, on their thighs. What is ever comfortable for you? Of course, mindfulness practice doesn't require closing your eyes, but many people like to close their eyes. It just makes it easier to focus the attention on the truth of this present moment, both in the body and in the mind, if we're not distracted by visual cues. Although, Perhaps in a minute or two we'll bring the attention or allow the attention to rest in the breath as it comes in and out of the body. You might like to start just by sitting and feeling all of your body sitting and pressure on your bottom or the pressure on your legs or your feet. If you're sitting in a chair, the pressure of the chair against your back. The coolness or the warmness of the of the temperature of the room against your face. And today, because the rain is strong, you might like to really listen to the rain for a while, to hear the sound. Using your whole body then, the ears and skin and the pressures and tinglings and hardness and softness and all the other cues that are the kinesthetic feedback from having a body as a way of letting your attention rest alertly in this moment. If you sit with your whole body as an antenna, really experiencing what it is to be alive in this moment, listening and feeling, 
and where the thoughts come and go. By and by, you probably be aware of the fact that the breath comes and goes with a certain regularity. I don't very much look for the breath as I sit, but I discover that if I sit quietly, the breath will present itself as the most prominent experience. And when it is, I let my attention rest with it. It's a valuable practice letting the attention rest with the breath because for many people, if the breath is not a compromised activity, don't have a cold or you don't have an allergy, your breathing is easy. It has a regularity and an ease about the coming and goingness of it that develops a kind of steadiness in the mind and body. So that while the instruction for mindfulness is to pay attention in a balanced and relaxed way to all aspects of experience, which includes all of the physical body as well as the breath and thoughts and emotions and perceptions, understandings and insights, the breath is really immediate and really plain and often very helpful and setting a foundation for experiencing all the other aspects of our being with a certain amount of balance and steadiness. So I'll be quiet. We'll sit probably for 20 minutes. And in this last minute that we sit together quietly, as we begin to move from uh, focusing most um, directly on our own internal experience of sensation and hearing and breath and thoughts and moods and come again to a place of being relational both with the teachings and the whole community that's here and especially with uh, the person with whom you've come. What we do um, as a practice on uh, Wednesday mornings when I sit here with the Wednesday morning community is uh, we do that transition by remembering that we're supported in our endeavor of sitting here and practicing together by the presence of the people around us. And so we um, allow that realization to come to mind and usually it causes us to feel companionable about the people that we're here with. And um, we have as a way of making that manifest that before we open our eyes, we smile. It's a way of uh, making a gesture of companionability. And uh, so instead of a bell, on Wednesdays, what we normally do is uh, 
uh, I say whenever you're ready and uh, if you're smiling, uh, open your eyes and smile at the people around you. And I'd like you most particularly today to smile at the person you've come with. So we'll use that as a bell for ending this period of silent sitting. So if you want to smile at your person, be all right to smile at a few other people as well. <laughs> what I'd like to do is, uh, because it's raining and we can't go outside to walk, and because I do want us to move, but continuing the practice of uh, focused and balanced, uh, precise attention. Uh, I'd like us for all to uh, get up together and uh, do some minutes of a uh, guided movement meditation. What I thought I'd like to talk about for a while now is um, relationship through the grid of the Eightfold Path, starting with uh, right understanding. You know, when we teach the Eightfold Path um, in a classical way, we talk about right understanding being the entry point for Dharma practice as we begin to understand that life is difficult, really difficult, just by the nature of how it is, not be, not our own fault, and then how that leads to right aspiration and how that leads to right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. But uh, And I always like to teach that even though it sounds like a path, like you start with A and B, C, D, etc., etc., that uh, it's really only presented that way because we need to talk in a linear way. We can't talk about all eight things at one time. It doesn't work. Um, but really it's not a linear path in the sense of that you have to step on piece one in order to do piece two and that you can't do piece four until you've finished with piece three. I mean, on a ladder, you can't get on the fifth rung before you've stepped on the first rung. But the Eightfold Path really uh, is um, more like a circle. You could get in in any place in the circle and still be in the circle. Uh, the other reason that a circle image suits me uh, better than a linear image is that um, you never finish with a circle. You don't get off the other end of a circle that you're always in the circle. And there's a way in which in this eightfold circle, or ninefold, if we're going to include right relationship, it isn't as if we finish with right understanding, ever. Uh, my sense of myself is that I, will, I hope I will continue to understand more deeply and more profoundly and develop, as a result, more, a more aspiration, more effort as my life continues. <coughs> so that it's a circle that amplifies itself. And that really we could start at any piece of it. I'd like to start with right understanding uh, and uh, 
tell you a story. Actually, this wasn't a story that I had planned to tell you. And there are several levels of right understanding. So that when we perhaps understand one, we still have not yet understood another. But here's a piece of right understanding in terms of relationship that came to me as we were doing that movement practice together. Uh, really guided movement is a form of mindfulness. That uh, I, I, I think of that period of practice that we did together not as the yoga break from sitting, which is the real practice, but the continuation of practice, paying attention to the body as it moves. And some of you may know that for uh, many years before I was a mindfulness teacher, I was a, a Hatha yoga teacher at the College of Marin for probably about 15 years. And uh, I'm so happy now to think that I had all those years of mindfulness meditation practice before I knew that it was mindfulness meditation <laughs> practice. But um, I know that it was. And one of the ways that I know it was has to do with the way balance in the mind heals a skewed vision in the mind, which is tremendously important when we talk about relationship. When you think about relationship, especially intimate and close relationships, uh, I, 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 I will posit, I'll say it's axiomatic, I think, that from time to time relationships are bumpy and difficult, that people living in relationship every once in a while uh, step on each other's toes, so to speak, uh, metaphorically, if not actually, um, and that in a certain sense, because we live so intimately with people, we have more possibility of stepping on their toes and actually of knowing exactly which toe is their Achilles heel, which is a bad anatomical uh, <laughs> metaphor, but nevertheless know exactly which toe hurts the worst. So that uh, when we're really upset, we tend to step on that toe more than any other toe. But uh, one of the things that I really see in my own relationship and I urge other people to look at is that if what we could maintain was a whole view of a person all the time, we would not be so startled when they hurt our feelings or step on our toes, and we'd be able to have a more balanced response to the situation rather than escalate it. But we don't, because one of the things about human physiology, I think, and the way that we work, our neurology, our psyche, is that when we are startled or offended or hurt or Put out, by some, put off by something that somebody does, that particular aspect of them fills up the whole mind like a mushroom cloud, and we forget everything else about that person that we liked perhaps the day before, or that we got into relationship with them about. So, uh, as we were doing that stretching practice together, and really raise your arms and pay attention and feel it, I remembered um, that. Um, this must be a, um, well, it's a more than 30-year-old story because uh, my son Michael is now more than 40, and he probably was eight years old, uh, and uh, uh, the eldest of uh, my four children. And uh, I uh, taught yoga at the College of Marin, and I taught every day from four until seven in the afternoon. And people would say to me, how can you teach at that time of day, you know, that's the hardest time for mothers to get out. 
And sometimes I think that's probably why I taught at that <laughs> time of day. But it was hard because I needed to somehow get everyone picked up from school and organized into the childcare, and this one at the swim team and this one at the dance class and this one installed with homework and this one doing something else, and get over to the college room by 4 o'clock, four days a week. And it didn't always work so smoothly. And uh, on enough occasions for me to remember it, uh, we would have the crisis of the homework. We'd get home, and Michael would say, I forgot my homework at school, so I can't do it. And uh, I'd feel upset about that because I'd need to leave, and I felt strongly about getting to class on time. And either we would have words about the homework, or I would at least think the words. I hope I thought the words more than I said the words, but probably some of A and some of B, and we worked it out one way or another. And somehow I, most of the time, practically always get it all taken care of and get to school just under the wire sometime and come in to teach a yoga class. And those of you who take yoga classes know that normally the instructor comes in and looks pretty much self-possessed. Nobody comes into a yoga class and says, I'm completely flustered, my mind is a mess. You know, it's not really helpful, even though it's true, to share that with the people who are there. So you come in, as I did, on enough occasions to remember it, and you say, okay, let's begin to practice, just as I did with you, as a stand with your feet this way, take a breath in, feel it in your body, notice how your weight is balanced, when I get home, he's going to hear it from me about the homework, and I'm going to tell him <clears throat> about how thoughtless I think. I'm thinking this to myself, of course. And out of my mouth is coming, take a deep breath and relax. <laughs> and tomorrow, he's going to hear it from me what's more on the way to school about how thoughtless I think he is. And bring your arms out to the side <laughs> and feel the tension in your arms as they're out on the sides. Relax the tension in your shoulders. <laughs> And he doesn't appreciate that I have this job and that my life also counts, only interested in his own self. He doesn't think from one day to the next and bring your arms up over your head and feel them. But what I noticed in the course of doing that, since I really needed to do it and feel my arms as I brought them out to the side, and I really needed to take a breath, and I really needed to take my arms up, is that somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes I had it, at one time figured out as a science, somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes, I could actually feel my mind relax. And all of a sudden, the internal diatribe, I'll tell him and I'll fix him and just for that, and no television and he'll hear it from me and this and that, all of a sudden stopped. And what it gets replaced with is really a clear mind in which a clear assessment of the situation takes place clear assessment of the situation is he's eight years old. He doesn't get it about my mother's job. Eight-year-old boys forget their homework in school. That's the way it is. It's not, that it's, it's not a personal thing. It's not doing it because he wants to make my life difficult for me. It's an eight-year-old thing. He could remember better. I could remember tomorrow morning when I take him to school to say, Michael, please remember the homework. And I could also remember when I pick him up at school before I take him home to say, Michael, did you remember the homework before we get in the car and before we go home? That's a more reasonable assessment of the situation as opposed to an adversarial assessment of the situation. So what, I'd like, what, I, what I realized 
in those times. And actually, when I thought back about it later, when I learned about mindfulness, is what happens is when the mind is startled and it fills with some distress, in that case, aversion and annoyance and irritation and a little bit of uh, agitation and fear. Oh, I'm going to be late for this class. Uh, I won't be there on time. What will people think of me? My reputation is at stake. Whatever it is that you think, that my mind flooded with all those hindrances is filled with them and it doesn't see clearly and it does not remember. He's eight years old. This is not personal. It's just the way he is. I think what happens whenever any... I think that story is paradigmatic of what happens to us when anybody frightens us or insults us or offends us or startles us, that the mind, unbalanced, becomes confused and does not make the right decision. That's one level of right understanding. So that when we look at relationships, if we start out with the right understanding that says the nature of mind is that when startled, it gets confused and forgets to have a balanced picture, so that it's quite likely, especially in intimate relationships, we will take personally what isn't personal. It gives us a leg up in being able to work out our relationships with our uh, our voluntary relationships rather than the ones that are given to us like our children and our parents, the people that we choose to be with. And that's one piece of right understanding. I'll tell you another story about right understanding, which I that I think is a right understanding story. I think it's a right everything story. It's a story that just recently uh, happened to me. And uh, I've just been tremendously affected by it. I think about it all the time. I think uh, that we are, beca- we are getting ready to have, uh, I believe, a, a healthy respect for how difficult relationship is. I think... Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up with a certain amount of fairy tale consciousness um, that you meet and you live happily ever after. I grew up on movies in the 40s where people rode off in, you know, with, on a white horse into the sunset and you didn't hear about difficulties after that. Or you found the handsome prince and you didn't hear about difficulty, who had a toothache or migraines or needed orthodontia or was dyslexic or all the other kinds of things that happen in relationships. You didn't hear about that. Some people um, grew up in families uh, that were very stormy, so they knew that relationship wasn't easy. Um, how many people, let's see a show of hands, how many people here grew up in stormy families so that you knew that relationship wasn't easy? Not everybody. How many people grew up in what looked like non-stormy families? So you assumed relationship would be easy. Uh, actually, sometimes I think that it, it's not, neither way is the ideal way. I think when we when we grow up in stormy, we expect it to be stormy and kind of struggle with it, but don't maybe appreciate how it really could be felicitous. And when we grow up, as I did, in non-stormy, I grew up with uh, very mild-mannered people. And I think probably they kept a lot to themselves. Also, by great luck, I think they they actually got along quite well. And... uh, 
my mother had an illness all of my life, and I think that it made their relationship of necessity one of um, more caretaking and tenderness than a lot of people uh, have, which was good for me because I learned about caretaking and tenderness. It was um, a problem for me because I didn't learn about how to work out um, conflict. I had to do that after I was in a relationship. It's hard to start doing it when you're 30 or whatever without help. But the thing is, I think we all start without help. We don't, from wherever we came, we didn't get enough help. Uh, so here's my story. Um, I, was, um, in, I was at a conference in Southern California two weeks ago, and uh, in one of those airport vans that take you from wherever you are to the airport. I had to go from Santa Barbara to LAX, so it's a long ride. It's for two hours, and hilly terrain, not much out there. And uh, it was very early in the morning, everybody in the back of the van kind of sleeping or talking. And it was a foggy morning also. And I was sitting up next to the van driver. And uh, he was uh, uh, the same van driver who had driven me to Santa Barbara a week before. So I already knew that his name was Mohammed and that he had come to L.A. eight years ago from Bombay and that his wife was there and he was still working out visa problems and that his father was dead but his mother was 82 and how many sisters and how many brothers and that he had been in the Indian restaurant business but the restaurant had failed because the neighborhood had gotten bad. So he had already done all the story of his life going to Santa Barbara. And we're riding back to LAX, and uh, on the way, it's foggy and rainy. At one point, about an hour into the trip, he uh, leaned over to me. Oh, there's another piece of the story that's important to tell you. The, uh, the conference was about how should people, was it about people who speak, teach spiritual practice and, different venues. And we're talking about the piece before teaching a practice is the piece about how should people know that they need a practice? Because it isn't so much teaching a practice or getting people... The, the, the important thing is that people should know that we need a practice. Otherwise, it's just another fad thing. Meditation as much as anything else. It's just, the, you know, the fad of the decade, perhaps. But... Uh, so we're talking about how to, really the piece of right understanding. How should people know that there's something that needs to get done? How can we talk about transformation if we don't have a sense that there's something that needs to get transformed? Have to do remedial practice before we do the practice. So it's been a whole week of people discussing, and people have really devoted a lot of their adult lives to thinking about this. So here we're, I'm driving along, and the van driver leans over suddenly and uh, says to me quietly, do you think it would be all right if I uh, drove off the highway here when I see the next uh, restaurant or rest stop or gas station because I'm very sleepy and I'd like a cup of coffee? So, and we've got an hour left in the trip. I said, yeah, I think it'd be fine if you drove <laughs> off. It'd be great if you drove off and got a cup of coffee. So in the meantime, we're out in the middle of nowhere and all these folks in the back are talking or sleeping or whatever. So uh, I decide I'm going to talk to him. I said, would you like me to drive? He said, no, no, I can make it. Well, five or ten minutes, there'll surely be a restaurant. I said, I'll talk to you. So thinking yeah, I'll keep him awake. 
And what I'd already done his whole biography going to Santa Barbara. <laughs> so I said to him, uh, I remember that he's Mohammed and he's from Bombay, so it's an Indian, but I said to him, Mohammed, you're a Muslim, right? And he said, yes. And I said, so do you pray? And he said, yes, of course. I said, every day? He said, yes, of course. I said, five times a day? He said, yes, five times a day. And do you need to face in a special position when you pray? He said, oh, yeah, you have to face towards Mecca. And in fact, I know all the answers to these questions, but I'm making them up to, <laughs> to keep the conversation going until I can make sure he's awake. And then there are some answers that I don't know. I say, so, Muhammad, what do you say when you pray? So he's about to tell me. Then he said, I don't know it in English. So don't tell me in English, just tell me how you say it. So he says, it's just seven sentences, and he tells me his seven sentences. And uh, I said, does it take long or short to do that? He said, well, it could take long, it could take short. It depends on how you do it, he said. Do you do it alone or with people? He said, well, you could do it alone, or you could do it with people. It doesn't matter. And uh, about the time, he said, you could do it fast if you only have a little amount of time, or you could do it slow. If you have five minutes, that's enough. If you have a half hour, that's even better. He said, but it doesn't really matter how long you do it. He said, what matters is that you're doing it all the time. He said, because really, that same feeling, I have to have that same feeling with me all day long while I go or I come or I eat or whatever when I'm working. You're praying all the time. So I really began to listen to him. And then he said, but you know, he said, what's really important he said, is it doesn't matter how long. He said, there's some people, they stand and they pray all day. He said, but it doesn't count. What really, I said, what counts? He said, it really has to be connected to your heart. I said, so tell me, Mohammed, how do you connect it to your heart? He said, well, you have to realize that it's like, it's just like if someone throws you out in the middle of the ocean and you don't know how to swim, that's the way you're supposed to pray. And I really have been thinking about that for two weeks since he said it to me. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 1, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.